Hello, and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvement Author in the Room conference call. My name is Miranda, and I'd like to welcome your conference operator for today's call. Right now, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star, then zero, on your touchtone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Dr. Chuck Kylo. Dr. Kylo is CEO of Greenfield Health in Portland, Oregon, a fellow with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and a practicing internist. Dr. Kylo, you may go ahead. Thank you, Miranda, and welcome, everybody. Uh, welcome to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. As Miranda said, uh, my name is Chuck Kylo. Uh, we're delighted that you could join us today. We actually um, uh, uh, maxed out the number of people who call in, so there's about 200 lines on the call today with several people uh, at each station, so we probably have about four to 500 participants out there, and we're delighted by that. Some of you may uh, be uh, first-time participants and author in the room. As you may know, uh, author in the room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Today, our featured authors are Dr. David Gonzalez and Dr. Stephen Renard, um, and they published the article uh, Varenicline, an alpha-4, beta-2, nicotine acetylcholine receptor, receptor partial agonist versus sustained release bupropion and placebo for smoking cessation. And um, we're delighted to have uh, both of them. Uh, as brief introductions, Dr. Gonzalez is the co-director of the Oregon Health and Sciences University Smoking Cessation Center in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine in Portland, Oregon, where he's conducted multiple research studies involving varenicline and a number of other smoking cessation uh, methodologies. So we're delighted to have Dr. Gonzalez. Welcome, David. Thanks, Chuck. And we also have with us Dr. Stephen Renard. Uh, Dr. Renard is the Larson Professor of Medicine in Pulmonary and Critical Care in the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of Nebraska. And um, uh, one of the most interesting things about Dr. Renard is he received uh, an, uh, his undergraduate degree in folklore and mythology from Harvard University and uh, subsequently trained at Baylor and uh, Barnes Hospital, Washington University in St. Louis and then the NIH. Dr. Renard is currently the director of the Nebraska Office of Tobacco Control and Research. Uh, welcome, Stephen. Thank you very much. So both of our authors have uh, many, many years of experience in smoking cessation, both as clinicians uh, and as researchers researching the various methodologies. So we are absolutely delighted to, uh, to have both of them today. As the moderator, it's my job to help focus our discussion on the application of this wonderful research uh, in the clinical uh, setting to discuss ways in which we can design and manage our systems uh, for clinical improvement. So the purpose of author in the room is for you to hear directly from the authors about their research findings and then for us to discuss together how we can translate this research into your practice. For this particular article, I believe that there are actually uh, implications for both the hospital setting and the outpatient setting and we will discuss both of those uh, later on in the hour. Here's how the hour will proceed. 
Doctors Gonzalez and Renard will give an overview of the article and its findings. That will take approximately 10 to 15 minutes, and they'll draw out some of the implications for the real-world practice setting in which you exist. And we'll set the stage for us to take your questions and comments. I'd like to stress how important your participation is in these calls. It's a great forum to get clarification on anything in the article itself by hearing directly from the authors and to comp contemplate with others the significance of the findings and the steps you might take to use this information towards the improvement of care. Importantly, some of you have uh, really wonderful smoking cessation programs in place, and sharing those programs um, would be beneficial for other participants as well. As I stated, there are approximately 200 phone lines connected on the call today <clears throat> with many individuals participating uh, per line. Some members of the media may be present uh, on today's call on a background basis only. Uh, one other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on both the IHI and JAMA websites as audio files. Complete details and instructions are available under the program section of IHI.org, uh, where actually previous author in the room calls are also available. So welcome and let's get started. Dr. Gonzalez? Thanks, Chuck. Uh, well, uh, welcome to everybody. This is David Gonzalez. As Chuck mentioned, I'm um, surprised uh, somewhat and, and pleased that uh, there's so many interested callers. I mean, with a uh, title like Varinicline and Alpha-4, Beta-2, Nicotinic, uh, Acetylcholine Receptor Partial Agonist, et cetera, et cetera, title, it's not the kind of thing that um, people sort of tune in just for entertainment in the afternoon, so I'm, I'm glad you're all on. I think the, uh, one of the most interesting things um, about the development of this uh, particular compound um, and Steve will talk more about specifically the method of action later, is that in terms of, of research, unlike some of the other compounds that have been developed before, is that this was designed around the idea that the alpha-4, beta-2 nicotinic receptor is really the one that um, is probably the most important or one of the most important in terms of the addiction to nicotine so that the compound was really designed to have a high affinity specifically for this receptor. And uh, as a result, we have a pretty good idea of what actually is occurring rather than sort of trying to guess. There are other compounds that have been developed that, um, you know, it's, it's still, we're still trying to figure out exactly how they work. They do work and are fine, uh, uh, fine medications. But with this one, um, because it was developed specifically for the alpha-4, beta-2 nicotinic receptor and for smoking cessation, I think it gives us a great place to begin a whole new area of research that is uh, very specifically targeted as we look at smoking cessation. So the, the paper in JAMA was one of two identically designed uh, trials. Uh, both were reported in, in that particular issue and um, they were 12-week primary efficacy studies. And what we were trying to do is to assess the uh, safety and efficacy of varinicline for smoking cessation compared with um, bupropion sustained release, uh, which is also marketed, it's marketed as Welbutrin or, or Zyban, for those of you who may not know it as bupropion, and placebo. And one of the things that we'd learned in the earlier trials with the is that 
as you might have heard, is that nausea was an, was an issue with um, some of the, um, the patients in the study. And so with this particular uh, phase three study is that the doses are titrated um, from a lower dose to a higher dose to help mediate some of the potential nausea that people might have. So we start out with 0.5 milligram for days one through three, uh, 0.5 milligram twice per day for days four through seven, and then it's one milligram twice uh, per day through week 12. There is no tapering uh, with it. It's not that it couldn't be tapered, but we didn't test it that way. And um, the bupropion in the trial was done according to uh, their label, and that also has enough titration as well for the first three days before going on to the regular dosing. So we're looking at the um, CO-confirmed continuous quit rates for uh, weeks 9 through 12 as a primary outcome, and then looking also um, at continuous abstinence for weeks 9 through 24, um, 9 and 9 through 52. Now, a lot of the data that you'll find in the um, clinical, uh, the public health service um, clinical guidelines for tobacco dependence treatment use seven-day point prevalence at week 24. So we also looked at... Uh, seven-day point prevalence at weeks 12, 24, and 52 in order to sort of compare our results with prior trials uh, for smoking cessation products. In addition, because of the, um, the specific targeting of the alpha-4-beta-2 nicotinic receptor that has, uh, has to do with dopamine release, as Steve will talk about, is that we looked at craving, uh, withdrawal, and reward, and satisfaction uh, in particular for uh, people who were smoking and using the drug. Now, one of the things with uh, any phase three trials, <clears throat> because they're pre-approved, uh, the drug that we're looking at um, is pre-FDA approval, is that these clinical trials um, need to be concerned not only about um, efficacy, but being able to distinguish potential adverse events um, from any um, pre-existing conditions that patients might have or any medications that they might use. And so the populations tend to be um, generally healthy compared to what you might see in your practice. So the ones, uh, the inclusion-exclusion criteria for these studies were very similar to what you see in most studies that are done as pre-approval, pre-FDA approval studies. Um, adults, uh, 18 to 75, they were motivated to quit smoking. They had to smoke at least uh, 10 cigarettes per day. They couldn't have quit uh, in the last three months, um, more than three months in the past year. Couldn't have any serious or unstable disease within the past uh, six months. Uh, and because we were doing a comparator, no previous use of bupropion was allowed um, in any form because we'd seen from previous bupropion trials that people who were retreated with bupropion for smoking cessation did poorer than they did when they were initially treated. So we didn't want to bias against bupropion in this trial, so um, no one was allowed to have had any history of bupropion use. Um, couldn't have used any other smoking cessation products, of course. And then psychiatric comorbidities were excluded. And there's been some concern about, uh, we have so many smokers that are, um, that might have psychiatric comorbidities. But again, in previous, uh, bupropion trials and other trials, we typically will um, exclude people with these kinds of histories, um, partially because 
that's what was done before, and then partially um, in order to uh, make sure that we can distinguish an adverse event that's related to the drug as opposed to uh, a pre-existing condition. So that's basically how it all started um, in terms of setting up the, the trial. In looking at the demographic characteristics, they're pretty similar for uh, all the groups. So, uh, so how did they do? At the end of the um, weeks 9 through 12, the quit rates for uh, vereniclin were 44% versus 17.7% for um, placebo, and that was uh, very significant at uh, uh, less than uh, 001. Um, bupropion was also more significant, uh, was also significant compared to placebo um, at 0 0.001, but the odds ratios were quite a bit different. The odds ratios for vereniclin versus placebo were uh, 3.85, for bupropion versus placebo was 2, and for vereniclin versus bupropion, it was uh, 1.93. So you can see that um, both of the uh, active drugs were um, successful for smoking cessation, and that for uh, vereniclin, at least at the end of um, the uh, 9 to 12-week period, is that the uh, the odds were almost four times better than placebo for quitting. But, of course, we're interested more than in just, you know, the short term. So if we look at um, nine uh, weeks 9 through 24, the quit rates uh, for Varenclin were 29.5, bupropion 20.7, and for placebo 10.5. These are the continuous abstinence uh, rates. And then weeks 9 through 52, it was 21.9 for vereniclin, 16.1 for um, bupropion, and 8.4 for placebo. The uh, differences between vereniclin and placebo were significant at all time points. And compared to bupropion, they were significant through week 24, but were no longer significant uh, at weeks 9 through 52, the uh, p-value there was 0 0.057. Now, the uh, seven-day point prevalence rates, which are um, ones that are often looked at, as I said, in the public health service guidelines, because many studies didn't have continuous abstinence, they, they use point prevalence, is that at 24 weeks, we have 33.5% of the Varenicline uh, group uh, abstinent, 24.9%. Uh, uh, of the bupropion group, and 14.5 of the placebo group. So from all the data, you can see that, that vereniclin did uh, function very well for smoking cessation and was superior to um, vereniclin at least up through um, weeks 24. Now, the, um, there are always concerns about what kind of... Um, uh, of side effects are there. The primary ones for uh, varenicline or the primary one of interest seems to be nausea. And um, with nausea, it really ranged from people who uh, had very mild nausea to moderate. And very few people had severe nausea. Um, only about 3% of people uh, uh, quit taking the medication due to um, uh, to nausea. So while it is uh, pretty common, about 30% of the uh, patients will get it, 
it does not seem to be one that causes uh, large numbers of people to not use it, but it certainly will be an issue uh, for your patient if they get it. And so I think one of the things to, um, my recommendation would be is to just up front say, you know, that this is a possibility, but for most people it's, you know, mild to moderate, and it depends on if you're willing to tolerate uh, that or not. So the, um, if we look at the, um, if we think about, you know, these drugs as uh, both being very, the two compared to the uh, bupropion as well as uh, Perviniclin as being two um, drugs have shown good uh, efficacy for smoking cessation. Um, the bupropion um, did about as uh, very similar to what it's done in previous trials. Verinoclin seemed to do better in these trials or in this particular trial. So I think there's much to be learned yet. Um, it is a very promising medication. Uh, the side pro, uh, effect profile, I think, is, um, is quite... Uh, um, a mile compared to perhaps some other drugs. And uh, so we look forward to uh, all of you using it uh, with your patients in practice. And uh, we'll certainly be interested in, in feedback you get from using it in a setting that is not a clinical trial setting. So I guess it's on to Steve now. Um, thank you very much, David. The, um, I'd like just to comment a little about the mechanism of action of, of varenicline. And uh, because I think it fits nice, its mechanism of action uh, fits nicely into the way I think we should be conceptualizing uh, cigarette smoking as an illness. Uh, the current concept is that cigarette smoking is a, is a chronic relapsing disease due in large part to nicotine addiction. And the mechanism of action, I think, for how varenicline works fits clearly into what we understand about the physiology of nicotine. Now, nicotine, of course, acts on uh, cholinergic receptors. There's two major classes. The nicotine gives the name to one of those, the nicotinic receptors, and, of course, there's the muscarinic receptors. Now, there are many different nicotinic receptors. In fact, there's probably 17 different genes that code for monomers of the components of the receptor, and then they can be combined into pentamers to form the nicotinic receptors. So theoretically, there's many, many uh, possible nicotinic receptors, uh, and many of them, in fact, are, play important biological roles, uh, both in the central nervous system and peripherally. The one that seems to be most important for nicotine's action as an addicting drug is the alpha-4 beta-2 receptor, which is uh, present in the central nervous system uh, in a number of places, most importantly in the mesolimbic system, where it regulates dopamine release. And dopamine release by the neurons in the mesolimbic system is thought to play a role in, in uh, many drugs of addiction. Well, the concept behind the development of Renaclin was, was to develop a, 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 what's called a partial agonist. Now, uh, in contrast to a full agonist that sits on the receptor and then activates the receptor fully, a partial agonist sits on the receptor and causes partial activation so that some of the receptor signaling is activated, um, but not completely. Uh, as a result, a partial agonist both activates the receptor and since it occupies the receptor and prevents it from being fully activated, in the presence of a full agonist, such as nicotine or acetylcholine, it prevents full activation and therefore can function as an as a, as a inhibitor at the receptor. Now, this has some potential real advantages in the treatment of addicting 
uh, in the treatment of addictions. The idea by being a partial agonist, varenicline can sit on the receptor and cause some signaling mimicking nicotine and therefore could prevent some of the withdrawal symptoms that come from lack of nicotine action. On the other hand, by occupying the receptor, varenicline can prevent nicotine from fully, more fully activating the receptor and providing the kind of reinforcement that occurs when a smoker smokes a cigarette. This has potentially real advantages in the treatment of addictions in that if somebody's given up nicotine, gone through some withdrawal, but then has a moment of weakness and takes a couple of puffs on a cigarette, the reinforcing effects of the nicotine uh, fairly reliably drive people back to smoking. Um, and in fact, it's generally speaking, uh, if somebody's smoked a cigarette or two, they almost certainly are going to go back to their, to their previous habit. By occupying the receptor, the reinforcing effects of nicotine are presumably less since varenicline partially antagonizes the effect of nicotine. And this might provide a smoker with some uh, protection, if you will, uh, against relapse. Well, that's the theoretical concept, and varenicline was developed specifically to achieve those pharmacologic goals. Uh, and the clinical results uh, seem to be quite consistent with that kind of effect. As, as David mentioned, uh, varenicline does reduce withdrawal symptoms, uh, and in that sense, it, it's similar to, uh, to bupropion. Um, interestingly, among the people who, can t who smoked while on the drug, uh, there was a reduction in the reinforcing effects of, of nicotine. And that was seen in the people on varenicline, but was not seen in the people treated with bupropion. Again, consistent with the ability of varenicline to function as a, nicotine, a nicotinic receptor partial agonist. Uh, the bottom line, of course, is that it did help people to quit smoking, uh, which, of course, is, is what we care about. By having an appealing mechanism of action uh, for treating uh, a nicotine addiction, and potentially for treating it and then retreating it in the case of people relapse, uh, I think that varenicline will offer a real important addition to the uh, therapeutic uh, toolkit uh, for uh, physicians who want to uh, treat people for smoking uh, addiction. Um, uh, uh, um, so I think that uh, it, it's going to be uh, an important uh, new addition. Uh, Chuck? Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Renard, and thank you, Dr. Gonzalez, for the introduction. Wonderful background and um, wonderful material for us to begin to discuss uh, the uh, systems that we have in place and both our practices, uh, possibly public health uh, systems, and I suspect we have some folks on the line who represent uh, public health agencies and in hospitals regarding how we uh, begin to use these medications and create uh, systems to use these medications for our patients who smoke. Before we move on to your questions and answers, which we're going to do, in, or to your questions, which we're going to do in just a second, I'll make a plug for our next author in the room call, which is September 20th at this same time, 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, on that call, we will have Dr. Harriet McMillan uh, discuss her article from the August 2nd uh, JAMA titled Approaches to Screening for Intimate Partner Violence in Healthcare Settings. So we look forward to all of you joining us on that call. 
Um, so um, without uh, uh, getting into it any further, I'd just like to actually move, because we have, we have such a large number of participants, directly to uh, the question and answer session. And Miranda will give us uh, some instructions as to how to get into the queue for that. Miranda? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have a question at this time, please press the zero, then one key. This will place you into a queue, and one by one, your lines will be open. So you may each ask your question. Again, that's zero, one on your touchtone phone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself, it will be zero, two. And our first question comes from RMCHCS. Okay, I have a client who's interested in using this drug but has a seizure disorder. Is there any contraindication to using this drug in the history of a seizure disorder? Well, let's see, Dr. Uh, Dr. Renard, do you want to address that question? Um, yes. Uh, in contrast to bupropion, which does lower the seizure threshold, uh, there's no specific contraindications to, uh, to the seizure disorders with the use of varenicline. Um, so it... Um, obviously, you need to, to, to continue to monitor, uh, to, to monitor your patient, um, but there's no evidence that it should be a problem. Wonderful. Um, you know, as we begin to think about, excuse me, as we begin to think about, uh, you know, how I ought to be managing smoking cessation, let's say, uh, in my practice, uh, we, I, I believe, have all of our smokers identified, and uh, they are labeled. We use a fully electronic system, so we can we can uh, identify them rel relatively uh, easily. Uh, David and Stephen, what would you suggest we do now with the uh, with your new data on varenicline and the availability of varenicline? and uh, changing the way we currently do smoking cessation, which is primarily at this point, you know, counseling and referral to, you know, in our case here in Oregon, we have the Oregon, you know, quit smoking line uh, for resources. Uh, and with the occasional use of bupropion, which most insurers, I believe, still don't pay for. Uh, so how would Verenicline uh, change the way you would recommend we set up our own smoking cessation program here in our private practice? Uh, this is uh, this is David Gonzalez, uh, Chuck. I think the um, your practice is uh, way ahead of um, of many. I think because uh, one of the things we find that's difficult is um, getting the drugs uh, to the patients and then getting them connected with you know counseling like quit lines. Even though there is a national number, is um, some physicians may not be aware of what's available with the quit lines. So I think that in terms of a um, a structure that that's a reasonable one. The question in terms of what drug you might choose certainly comes down to uh, trying to determine for your specific patient which one you think would be uh, um, more reasonable. Now, with one of the things with varenicline is that there are no um, gender differences in terms of outcomes, and with some of the nicotine replacement uh, products, uh, there is some data to indicate that there may be uh, a negative bias against women. Um, so in that sense, I think it would be a, uh, a drug that you could use for either men or women. And if there's any concern about, like the last caller had about seizure disorder, then uh, we don't have that with a varenicline. But I think it's, it's really up to uh, you and your patient to decide which seems to be the most reasonable. 
Yes, I'd, um, I'd like to further elaborate on that. The, the, this, the, the concept in terms of the, so the overall strategy for intervening for smoking cessation is, is that it, uh, it, it kind of is a, a health care maintenance activity uh, and that people either succeed or they don't succeed. And, and I think that that, that that kind of concept is, is kind of archaic. And the, the current idea is that, in fact, the people with an addiction are going to be uh, uh, at for the, for the rest of their life at risk for relapse, even if they succeed. And, and what they should succeed in is achieving a remission. It's kind of like the way we would deal with lymphoma, uh, if you will. And so the idea is to try to induce a, a remission as aggressively as possible. And that really means uh, referring the patient to a behavioral program. The more aggressive a behavioral program, the better. And the more people involved in the behavioral support, uh, the better. And then to, in addition, put them on the most aggressive, appropriate medication regime. The idea being that you want to induce a remission uh, with the greatest likelihood of success. Uh, Varenicline obviously has some advantages in that in direct comparisons it seems to have a higher uh, uh, ratio of of success uh, than agents to date. It's also relatively easy to use uh, in that um, tablets are, generally speaking, easier to use than most formulations for the nicotine replacement that requires frequent dosing and so forth. Um, and it, 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 it's new in that many patients uh, who are come in for and are interested in smoking cessation will have had prior experience with, with other medications. So I think that, that there is a number of potential advantages uh, to varenicline, um, uh, as David mentioned, um, but I think that the more options that, uh, that the clinician has in approaching a smoker, uh, the more opportunities there are to be aggressive to, to, to induce it. And so this represents another new and important addition. Wonderful. So it's, it's really, um, uh, you know, lacking a smoking, a specific smoking cessation program that we can, actually there, there, are, there are some, but uh, for many practices they, uh, they lack a program that they can send people to, although there are local resources. What I'm hearing is a shared decision-making process to lay out uh, their options uh, with the data being strongest for verniclin and then uh, based on uh, patient concerns and patient preferences make a decision from there. If we choose verniclin, how long would you suggest treating for? <laughs> David, do you want to take that one? Uh, okay. This is David Gonzalez. Um, I think that uh, it'll be an interesting, um, I think, question to see how it plays out. There was a maintenance study that was done that was in the same issue of JAMA, and the drug is approved for um, longer use than the 12 weeks of treatment that we had uh, in the trial that uh, we were involved in. And as Steve mentioned, because um, nicotine uh, addiction is a chronically relapsing disease, is that there certainly would be advantage into um, as far as having patients stay on a drug longer if it looked like that would uh, reduce the risk of relapse. And in the maintenance study, um, they found that for those who quit during the first 12 weeks um, on varenicline and then went on and they randomized some of those quitters to continue with varenicline and some of them to placebo, is that those that uh, continued on varenicline, stayed quit longer than those who were uh, then randomized to placebo. But I think it still comes down to 
things, you know, there are issues that are sort of unrelated to smoking cessation per se, and that has to do with insurance, uh, cost for the patient, those sorts of issues. So I think the context of where the quit takes place um, also plays a role in terms of sort of the medical decisions that are made along with the patient about how to go about this. Yeah, I'd like to add two points. First, uh, it, it, just to emphasize again, as David pointed out, that uh, the extended use of Reniclin for relapse prevention, uh, while supported by the one study that was published in JAMA at the same time as ours, is an off-label I- indication. Um, uh, and so that needs to be needs to be uh, uh, made clear. However, uh, I think it's also clear that uh, that smoking is uh, uh, is 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 a heterogeneous disorder. Different people smoke for different reasons, uh, and different people require different kinds of interventions. Uh, so the concept that it's just a habit is, I think, well recognized as not being accurate. But it's also a very different condition for different people, and so the skilled clinician really needs to be able to individualize the approach to individual patients. And obviously, if they feel comfortable with off-label uses of of any kind of a medication that might be in to benefit their patient, of course, with appropriate informed consent, uh, the, the appropriate clinicians are, you know, can use such therapies appropriately, and several are recommended, uh, in fact, in the DHHS guidelines. And the, lab- the label is for 12 weeks of treatment. Is that right? Um, the label, David, is for up well, to 24 weeks. Is that right? That, uh, my understanding was that it was, um, I think we'll have to go back and look. Certainly yeah, for I 12. To, I would have to take a look at the yeah, exact labels and stuff. Um, uh, um, but but I, I, I'll see if I can find out before the call's over. Sounds good. Okay, great. Miranda, next call. And our next question comes from GlaxoSmithKline. Please go ahead. Uh, we, we would like to know uh, how do you see the level of intervention in the clinical trials translate into real-world practice in terms of uh, true real-world practice success of varenicline uh, as opposed to what we have seen in the clinical studies? Well, I start off uh, addressing that. This is a problem with all clinical trials for smoking cessation. In that, first of all, there's a kind of a selection bias which is uh, people that volunteer to be in a smoking cessation clinical trial and then who meet the entry criteria are likely to be um, more highly motivated and so forth than the average patient that a clinician will see in practice. Um, So for that reason alone, you would expect to see higher quit rates in clinical trials than will be observed in clinical practice, and that's, that's widely seen. In addition, uh, clinical trials always have a, a, a well-designed clinical trials have a, a somewhat kind of standardized uh, in, level of intervention uh, from a behavioral perspective, and these studies also did that. Now, the data on uh, and David may be better to comment on this than I, but the data are, I think, quite clear that the more intervention a person gets in terms of behavioral support, the better they will do. Uh, the, the intervention program that was used in this trial is much more than would occur in many offices, but much less than a person might get if they went to a specialized center where they could be involved in either multiple or individual or multiple group sessions. And so behavioral components alone could either be more or less than would be observed in this study. But as a general rule of thumb, uh, clinical trials tend to get 
higher quit rates than are observed in uh, in clinical practice. The key thing is the difference between the a, a drug and placebo in that in general that relative ratio tends to be preserved. Uh, David, do you have? I don't have anything really to add on that. I will say though that um, the sort of follow up on um, some of what you mentioned, Steve, is that the um, in clinical trials the the selection process again, as I mentioned uh, at the outset, is designed to look at uh, safety uh, as well as efficacy, and so that further um, sort of restricts the population so that we can tell, for instance, if someone has uh, some event that occurs to them while they're in the trial, that it, we can be assured that that seems to be the drug or withdrawal rather than some other medicine that they might be taking or some uh, pre-existing condition. Great. Uh, Miranda, next question. And ladies and gentlemen, as a reminder, the if you'd like to ask a question, please press zero, then the one key. And our next question comes from Marion General Hospital. Marion, please go ahead. We have two questions, please. Um, the first question is, on the study population, um, Bob didn't want anybody with cardiovascular disease within six months or a history of panic disorder. I know the bupropion can exacerbate an anxiety disorder. Can this, um, and when you said significant cardiac history, does that include just the history of PVCs, et cetera? Okay. Um, uh, about the panic disorder, as far as I know, there's no data in terms of whether uh, there's any, any issues there. Significant cardiac history would not have included just VPCs. This was generally speaking left to the investigator at individual sites in terms of what was viewed as, as significant. It's not a statistically significant, but rather a medically significant uh, condition. And so um, uh, obviously many of the subjects could have had some kind of cardiovascular history. The idea was not to enroll people that might be having unstable angina or uh, problems that in fact, could require acute intervention. Um, and as David mentioned, of course, this is another issue with respect to clinical trials that obviously has to be considered when clinicians are faced with patients who, in fact, have more active problems than that. For the cardiac risk, is that more of a theoretical risk, or is, or is there some um, other data about the risk of renaclin in that regard? Uh, again, as, as far as I know, there's no, uh, there's no evidence to suggest that Varenicline puts people at increased uh, at increased cardiac risk. Right. I think one of the uh, this is David Gonzalez. I think one of the issues to, to again keep in mind is that um, when drugs are going out before the FDA, is that um, safety uh, the safety questions are um, really critical ones to look at. And so again, anyone with any unstable medical conditions would be excluded because that may mask uh, an actual um, event caused by the drug. And so it's not until the post-marketing studies where uh, we're looking at, for instance, patients with COPD or cardiovascular issues that we'll have a better way of answering some of the questions around uh, those issues. Okay. Uh, and Miranda, next question. Yeah, we have another question in Marion. Okay. Uh, is this considered a first-line therapy now? Oh, I would consider it a first-line therapy. Okay. Hey, 
sir, real quick, the panic disorders, like I said, the bupropion is, has, is known to um, exacerbate anxiety. Is this drug or will this drug? This is David Gonzalez. There's, uh, as Steve pointed out, there's no data to indicate that that would be the case. But because we were using bupropion as a comparator drug and we're blinded to who gets assigned each drug, is that all of the uh, participants in the study uh, had to meet the um, inclusion-exclusion for both drugs. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Appreciate the questions. And the next caller? And our next question comes from... Uh, just to anticipate that a second, the, uh, the, the labeling is for 12 weeks with, it, uh, with, with the option to continue it for an additional 12 weeks. Yeah. Great. Appreciate that follow-up. Yeah. And our next question comes from Southern Tier Healthcare. Please go ahead. Hello. Uh, somebody uh, had mentioned in the beginning of this talk that um, successive t attempts with uh, bupropion, um, you may have a, a decrease in the effectiveness. Is there any evidence or theoretical basis that uh, varenicline may be less effective if it's used in, in successive attempts? Now, this is David Gonzalez. Uh, those trials haven't been done yet. Um, I'm sure that that would be something that Pfizer would be interested in looking at because, of course, uh, as Steve pointed out and as, as we all know, because of the uh, course of the addiction, the likelihood of a person having to quit again uh, is quite high. And so it would be useful to know is if the drug is uh, efficacious in uh, repeated treatments. And at that point, as a clinician, would you recommend trying or going to a nicotine replacement therapy if they haven't done that, or uh, what, what's your feeling on that? Well, I, obviously, with no sort of experience, this is entirely a theoretical kind of a response. However, I, I think that it depends very much on, on the, the, the previous experience that an individual patient had. Uh, starting with the assumption that smoking's heterogeneous, if somebody tries to quit with a specific medication, there's two possibilities. Either they succeed with it or they don't. If they don't succeed, it may be that whatever their addiction is, it's not terribly amenable to that particular intervention, in which case I think trying something else at the next serious quit attempt would be ideal. On the other hand, if somebody succeeds in quitting with a given intervention, then the issue is why is it that they relapse? If they relapse because of some, and, and relapses typically occur at times of stress uh, and especially if there's alcohol involved. And so if somebody has a few drinks to handle stressful times, then relapse can occur then. If that, if that occurred some months after a successful quit attempt or some years, I, I think that reinitializing a, a, a remission with the same therapy is, is quite reasonable since the history is that actually they were able to succeed with the prior treatment. And so I think you can, you can use prior experience and, and a likely assessment of why the relapse occurred uh, to, to try to gauge how you want to go about doing it. Um, if, if you think that the therapy was ineffective, then switching to something else would be, would, would be quite reasonable. And, and so and the choices obviously would be nicotine replacement or some other, some other kind of medication. But I think that, um, that, that, that this is where individualizing the therapy can sometimes be very, very helpful. Thank you. I think another key that, that we tend to forget about is one of the, uh, 
the more basic ones, and we see this in clinical trials all the time, is are they actually using the drug? Uh, compliance is a tremendous issue with uh, any medication, and so I think one of the best things to do is ask the patient if they run successful um, is have they been using the, the drug according to the way it uh, was prescribed? Um, because, you know, often what we know people will do is if they're paying for the medication, they'll tend to, uh, like with this drug, since it's dosed twice per day, they may decide that, well, maybe I can get by on one and then stretch my prescription out further. And so I think those are uh, other kinds of issues that... Uh, need to be looked at as well. Yeah, particularly true if, if the patient is paying out of pocket, which I'm assuming most are going to be. Any in information on whether Veronica will be covered by any insurers? I don't have any information. At this point, I'm assuming that Pfizer will be, um, you know, trying to um, talk with uh, various uh, large uh, insurers to, to get it on their formularies. Um, but I, I don't know at this point. It, it's always takes a while. Uh, there's issues of cost and a new drug, and, you know, it's, it, it really depends. Any idea how much is going to be priced at 150 milligrams twice a day on a daily basis? I actually don't know the price, uh, what kind of pricing they're looking at. Uh, Steve, do you have any idea? Oh, my understanding was that uh, the pricing would be similar to what it would cost for uh, about a pack of cigarettes a day for a month or something like that. Right, right. Um, however, I... I, I Recognizing that this is an advocacy position, um, the, uh, I, I suspect that many of the people on the call will be in positions to uh, try to influence and lobby for, uh, for coverage one way or another for smoking cessation services, including, uh, including medications. And, uh, and, and I think that the decision is inherently a, a political one in terms of what will be covered and what won't be covered. One of the arguments that's made about not providing smoking cessation services uh, and, not, and, and medications is that, is that they're frequently are relatively ineffective. I, I think that there's been a lot of very good uh, economic data that suggests that actually smoking cessation interventions are always a bargain uh, compared to other health care interventions. And interestingly, the, the more that you spend on a smoking cessation intervention, the more cost-effective it becomes, which is to say that since you greatly increase the, num the likelihood of a quit by adding a medication to a quit attempt, uh, you get more quits, and therefore it's more effective than if you don't. And so, uh, so I think that everybody uh, who is in a position to help lobby for extended coverage uh, for smoking cessation interventions in general uh, certainly should, should feel confident that they're, that they're acting in everybody's best interest by doing that. We spoke a little bit about, uh, you know, the process of engaging patients in the medical practice, and there really are maybe a couple of other settings. There's certainly the hospital setting, and, uh, and then there is the special smoking cessation clinic. I want to talk a little bit about each of those. Um, uh, David, you're in, at Oregon Health and Sciences mm -hmm. University, and um, Stephen, you're at um, uh, University of Nebraska. Do either of you have inpatient programs, and what do you believe is the role of varenicline or other medications uh, in such inpatient programs? Uh, not, not, not admitting pa patients, but identifying patients who are smokers at the time of admission, and how does your program manage that? Well, we don't uh, 
uh, our group is only confined to doing research, so we're not involved in the inpatient, um, any inpatient program at the hospital. But uh, clearly there are some uh, fairly formidable um, logistical issues, uh, as you mentioned, being able to accurately identify smokers when they come into the hospital, um, as well as um, being able to um, to have the medications that you'd like on the formulary and those sorts of things that um, need to be part of any kind of program in order to make it uh, functional. I don't know about, how about you, Steve? Yes, well, we would, uh, we, we've tried on occasion to have a, a formal program. The logistical ones uh, are, are not trivial, and the costs involved are, are fairly high. Uh, in fact, we've, we've, in our hospital, we do take a somewhat aggressive approach, but it's very much dependent on, on the specific points of, of, of service. Having a medication that can be prescribed, uh, particularly something like this that's relatively easy uh, to instruct people in, though, is a, is a big plus. There is a lot of uh, interest in initiating smoking cessation uh, follow-up on people following hospitalization. Now, this is, this, this is the kind of medication that, in fact, is, uh, uh, ought to be fairly effectively used in a situation like that. Uh, however, I'll point out that that, that particular trial uh, as far as I know, hasn't been uh, hasn't been performed, and so um, uh, it's it's perhaps a study that needs to be done. But I think that a clinician who has a patient that's been hospitalized is now abstinent, wants to put them on some kind of medication to help support them uh, following their hospitalization, uh, recognizing that it's an off-label indication. This would be an interesting uh, and I think appropriate use of the medicine. Yeah, even more challenging with, with the expansion of hospitalist services where the patient, the individual taking care of the patient may not be the primary care physician. Yes. Uh, and uh, simultaneously, at least at our hospital, uh, uh, Prov- the Providence Health System, uh, at, at least at our, our, our local hospitals, which is St. Vincent Medical Center, there's an excellent program for identifying smokers and then giving them some very brief counseling and uh, a set of resources. Uh, but then the challenge would be to connect that to real treatment and then to follow up appropriately with the patient and the primary care physician. Right. As I said before, the data are quite good that that uh, if you add pharmacologic support to that kind of an intervention, you greatly increase the number of quits, and you also greatly improve the cost-effectiveness of the intervention since actually the behavioral component is rather expensive, essential, but rather expensive. Is there a role for you know, regional, uh, citywide, or other regional smoking cessation, specific smoking cessation programs that you can refer people to? And if so, uh, how do those programs get funded? Do we recommend funding that from the out of the public health services money, or uh, what's your experience there? Well, I think the uh, the uh, National Quitline Consortium, um, you know, is probably the most efficient kind of a program because it allows callers to be wherever they are. They don't have to go someplace to do it, and their their quit rates, while I think they're a bit less than face to face. Because of flexibility, um, I think, um, and plus many of them have multiple language options, which you may not have in a freestanding program. And so I think that is probably, in my mind, at this point, the best model that we have, along with having the the medical providers um, provide the information on the drugs, uh, adverse experiences, and the follow-up on compliance, and then connecting them up with um, 
the quit lines, or if there is a freestanding program, that would also be uh, an excellent option like the one at St. Vincent's. Right. And the quit smoking. So I think there is uh, there is generally a, a smoking cessation support line available in each state, or is it a national number? I know in Oregon it's an 800 number, it's an 877 number. There is a national number, and actually what healthcare providers can do is if you call that number, um, they will send you to your, and I think almost all states now have quit lines, um, they'll rate transfer you to the local state quit line and then if you mentioned you're a healthcare provider, they can tell you the kinds of services that would be available um, for your patients should they call that number. And it varies quite a bit from state to state. Now, private insurers also uh, purchase those kinds of programs as well and so they would differ somewhat from what the state uh, lines would provide. But um, I think it's useful to uh, uh, to make contact with your local quit line so you can find out what is available and how appropriate that might be for your patients. Any experience with the workplace uh, cessation programs? We've done uh, some workplace uh, cessation programs and have found them, at least in the past, to be um, challenging at best. Um, I think there's, uh, Steve might know, uh, I think there's some data on some uh, fairly successful programs that have been done. But the workplace uh, programs um, we found, for instance, uh, we're working with the state of Oregon, and the patients who came to us had uh, four different health plans and all had different coverage for medicines and the process in getting the medicines, we were trying to run a group program, and some of the people didn't get their medicine by the time the group was over. And so there's these other sort of logistical issues that are there even if the coverage is in place. And so if you have a freestanding program where you know things are uh, are covered uh, or the person has to pay out of pocket, that actually seemed to work better than a, um, a workplace one where there were multiple coverages. Yeah, my... Um uh, my former colleague, David Doughton, uh, conducted a number of worksite programs, both here at our medical center and in, uh, in several employers in the Omaha metropolitan area. In general, those activities were done as a kind of a one-shot kind of a deal. There'd be some kind of interest in some kind of smoking program, and, and a number of people could come and could certainly benefit from that. But I think that that flies in the face of, of the current concept of the way smoking should be regarded, which is as a chronic relapsing disorder. And so um, uh, a workplace program really needs to be able to provide support on a, on a continuing basis. Uh, after a person quits, they're not like they're a never smoker. They're now a former smoker, and they need to first of all, guard against relapse, uh, but in the event that they do relapse, and as David pointed out, that's going to happen for many, many people, uh, then they need to, ha to have induction uh, of, of remission again at the earliest possible time. And so, so continued therapy, uh, just like with any other chronic disorder, is, is going to be required. And I, and I think that in our experience, that's been a, a limitation for many workplace programs. Well, uh, Dr. Gonzalez, Dr. Renard, I'd like to thank you very much. We are out of time for questions at this point, and uh, it's been very enlightening for me and hopefully for the participants as well. Um, and uh, just as a reminder for our next author in the room call, September 20th at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, approaches to screening for intimate partner violence in healthcare settings in the August 2nd, 2006 JAMA. Um, 
once again, you can look for further details on both the IHI and JEMA websites for further information and for archived uh, recordings of prior Author in the Room calls. Author in the Room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical practice. It's a collaborative program between the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Again, Dr. Gonzalez and Dr. Renard, thank you very much for participating. Thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, we'll see all of you next time on Author in the Room. Ladies and gentlemen, to end this call, simply hang up your phone. Again, thank you. <laughs>